0: Thank you for your word that has already been read and that we ask for your grace to be poured out upon our brother, AJ, that he may speak your words to us through these words, that we might learn to walk in a way worthy of our Lord Jesus Christ and for the glory of his name. Lord, in your mercy. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Good morning. I want to thank all of you, um, and especially Father Brian, for giving me the opportunity to, uh, to preach this morning. It sounds like there's a lot of you. So uh, that'll, be a, that'll be a new thing for me. But uh, thank you so much for coming. I grew up in the Lutheran Church. And in the Lutheran Church, every Lutheran sermon starts with a quote from St. Paul that is uh, found at the beginning of most of his letters. And so I would like to, this morning to begin likewise. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, amen. Can I pray for you to be healed? We were walking along the boardwalk along the Fox River in Green Bay, Wisconsin. For Tissa and I, it was vacation, the last one we were going to get before Reagan was born, and a pilgrimage to the Mecca of my Packer fandom, Lambeau Field. I got to see a preseason game, and they won. It was against the Browns, though, so. (laughs) For the man asking to pray for me, it was one of the monthly non-denominational worship on the water gatherings held on Green Bay's waterfront. Sure, I said. When you're a blind guy who's also a Christian, dealing with would-be faith healers isn't exactly an uncommon experience. At this point, I decided that it was usually just easier to let them pray than trying to explain the more subtle ways in which God uses my blindness for his kingdom. There have been a few faith healers where that has not been the case that have been uh, very I- I've able to, been able to form genuinely deep, meaningful relationships with. Um, and those tend to be the ones who God told, no, this one's not one that you're supposed to heal. Um, so I've had some interesting conversations. But generally speaking, especially when it's a drive by on the street, just let them pray and move on. <laughs> um, Now, it was not God's plan to accomplish that particular miracle on that Sunday in August. But I did have an interesting revelation after the fact. Both the faith healer and I thought we knew what would happen when he prayed. But ultimately, there was only one person in that story, in that encounter, who genuinely knew the outcome. And that was God. Each of our scripture passages today in very different ways is concerned with real, radical manifestations of divine power. And tying all of them together, I think, is a simple, central truth about God's power and spiritual gift. They are God's gift to give as He wills. It sounds so simple, and yet it's a truth many Christians find it incredibly difficult to grasp. We try to make God safe, and make ourselves the primary actors. It's the natural processes of that old man that Paul talks about so much in the book of Ephesians and elsewhere. To do this, we either remove the miraculous entirely, which is foolishness for people whose faith rests on the resurrection. Or we expect every Christian to demonstrate certain spiritual gifts as a sign of salvation at the core of both of these ideas we place the emphasis on us not on god and reduce his power to something his divine power to something safe predictable and easy to understand but the spirit is first and foremost a person and a person of power it is god who sends his spirit for his purposes so what are those purposes I think today's passages provide at least a partial answer. God sends his spirit in power to definitively demonstrate his authority. And on this basis, God's spiritual gifts equip his people for ministry. So God establishes his um, ultimate divine authority and then he equips his people for ministry with spiritual gifts. Now, to a modern reader, the first point about God displaying his authority in these passages might not necessarily be obvious, but to a reader in biblical times, it's a bit more apparent. In most pre modern societies, most societies before sort of the rise of the Enlightenment Industrial Revolution, people perceived themselves to be at the mercy of unpredictable forces. And these forces were personified in the four traditional elements wind, water, fire, and earth. They were, they were to be feared, these elements, and often propitiated. Often um, tried, people tried to appease them. Now, water in particular, which shows up in each of our passages, was not only dangerous, but often served as a barrier that separated people, realms, and even gods. Over time, superstition became idolatry. As people sought to make these elements safe, by the creation of idols and the worship of false gods. This was the audience for the miracles of Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus. And God's message sets these beliefs on their head. I created all the forces you fear, God says through his actions. My power and control over them is absolute. Tremble, O earth, as the psalmist says, at the presence of the God of Jacob. Thus, it is in God alone that we should place our trust, not in any false idols or contrivances that might try to limit these elements. Nor can any power on earth, not even the elements, separate us from God if we give him that trust. Both Second Kings and Mark's Gospel demonstrate this explicitly. When Elijah smote the Jordan River with his cloak or his mantle, and by the way, this cloak or mantle is the symbol of his prophetic authority. The river was divided. And by parting the Jordan, which God does several times in scripture, uh, which separated the promised land given to Israel and Judah from their neighbors, God is reminding those who are there that his authority extended beyond the promised land. He is, after all, the very same God who separated the waters above and the waters below at creation. All waters essentially are subject to his authority. Once they were across, Elijah was then lifted up after being separated from Elisha by fire. So again, we have this uh, <clears throat> this element coming through and separating, and Elijah is lifted up to heavens, to the heavens by wind and fire. And this again demonstrates that the forces that people feared were forced to bow to God's will. There is not a God of the winds or a God of water or a God of fire. God is Lord over all. Finally, Elisha Elisha took Elijah's place as the vessel of God's miracle, striking the water with the mantle, his former master and teacher's mantle, and crossing back over on dry land. Now, Jesus' miracle in today's reading is similar in type, but in a couple of ways greater in scope. After sending his disciples on ahead across the water, Jesus became separated from them. Worse still, a storm arose. And given that the experienced fishermen in Jesus' company of disciples were take, taken off guard and straining at the oars, these are not people who are unused to navigating small boats in stormy seas, and yet they're having a hard time with this storm. So it's probably a pretty serious and sudden storm. But Jesus and Jesus doesn't part the water he walks on it, then sat in the boat and instantly calmed the storm. While for Elijah and Elisha, the water was still a barrier that needed to be pushed aside, for Jesus, it was simply a bridge that he easily walked across to be reunited with his apostles. Where the miracle of Elijah and Elisha required a symbol of their prophetic authority, Jesus calmed the storm simply by the power of his presence. He doesn't even say anything. He doesn't say, be still. He just sits in the boat, and the storm instantly ceases. Thus, he demonstrates his authority is greater than even that of Israel's mightiest prophet. As Paul tells us in Ephesians, we are also united to Christ and partakers in that divine authority through water. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism bring us together into the body of Christ, as Paul tells us in today's passage. In baptism, we pass through the water and rather than being separated from God, are united to him and separated from the old self. We are clothed in Christ, even as Elisha was in Elijah's mantle. Even as God demonstrates his authority and calls on us to place our trust in him. He also uses his gifts and miracles to equip his people for ministry. Today's story in Elijah and Elisha, after all, isn't just about Elijah's ascension to heaven. It's also about Elisha's transition from student to prophet. Elijah and Elisha are ministering to the kingdom of Israel in a time when it is deeply sunken into idolatry. The promises that were made, the covenants that were made by the people of Israel at the time of the conquest have now been abandoned by the Israelites and they've chased after many of the same foreign gods that God told them to drive out of the land in the Pentateuch and in the book of Joshua. So it's no accident the route that Elijah and Elisha take to the river. Gilgal, Bethel, and of course Jericho, are all prominent sites in the conquest of the land by Joshua and by the Israelites. Essentially, Elijah is walking to his ascension, recreating this conquest in reverse, as a sign that the mission now of Elijah and Elisha is going to be to to fight and combat against this idolatry. And what's interesting is that each of these sites Elisha's given a chance to turn back. Stay here, for my road goes to Bethel, to Jericho, to the Jordan. And at each site, he says, As the Lord lives, let me stay with you. In other words, Elisha's faithfulness is in stark contrast to Israel's persistent idolatry. And this is a, a kind of a last le- or one of the last lessons that Elijah is teaching Elisha this lesson of persistence and faithfulness. After the crossing, Elijah asked Elisha what he could do for him. And Elisha's request is for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. The double portion was, by Jewish custom, set aside for the firstborn. So Elisha is asking Elijah to make him his heir. He wants to inherit Elijah's mission, work, and power. In his response to this request, Elisha taught his student, or Elijah taught his student, one final lesson. What Elisha asked was a hard thing," e- Elijah said. But if he saw Elijah's ascension, it would be granted to him. Elisha wanted to receive a blessing and an inheritance from his beloved teacher. But the teacher reminds him here one last time that only God can give Elisha the inheritance he desires. Immediately, while they're still speaking, the passage says, Elisha saw Elijah's ascension, confirming God's willingness to make him Elisha's heir. And it's in this context that we can read Elisha crying out, oh my father, because he knows that he has been made the heir of his beloved teacher by the God they serve. Elisha himself immediately embraces this transition by tearing his own clothes, symbolically putting aside the old man for the final time, and donning the mantle of his former teacher, and so becoming a prophet. Finally, he repeated Elijah's miraculous crossing, confirming, as the company of the sons of the prophets their present announced, that the same spirit that rested on Elijah now rests on Elisha. Now the presence of this company of prophets, or the sons of the prophets, points to one of the key aspects of Elisha's ministry. In his commentary on 1st and 2nd Kings, theologian Peter Lightheart describes Elisha's work as founding a community of prophets in the deeply idolatrous kingdom of Israel. In other words, After the great work and the miracles that Elijah has done, it is now Elisha's job to teach, guide, and build the faithful remnant in this fallen kingdom. This has deep resonance with Jesus' disciples, who build new communities of faith after the resurrection, small remnants that will, in due time, grow into the mighty church of today. In our New Testament lesson, Paul is seeking to help one such community understand the role of God's power, grace, and spiritual gifts in relation to their own ministry. Now, the context of this passage is somewhat lost to us, but a couple of things seem pretty clear. First of all, there seems to have been a good bit of division and dissension in the church in Ephesus. Whenever Paul starts talking about the need for unity, um, pointing out to them that he's a prisoner and pointing out his own suffering and using the metaphor of the body, you know that probably people are not getting along the way they should be. So that's one thing that seems to be happening. And we can speculate, I think, that given the juxtaposition of these these offices and the way he talks about grace and gifts here, that possibly uh, there's also a sense that certain spiritual gifts or certain offices in the church are better than others and give people uh, the ability to lord it over others. So there may perhaps be an element of spiritual elitism creeping in. This problem crops up in several of the churches to which Paul writes, yes I'm looking at you the Corinthians. Depressingly it's also still a problem for a lot of churches today. And it goes directly back to the basic point that I made at the beginning of this sermon. There's too much emphasis on us, not enough on God. Paul taught the Ephesians the same lesson that Elisha learned. Elisha learned. (laughs) And it's a lesson we're still learning today. So Paul explains that each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, the grace that we receive has nothing to do with our own merit. Now, we think about this a lot as Protestants in terms of salvation, salvation by grace, grace, alone, grace alone through faith alone in Christ Jesus. It's in all of the major Protestant confessions, including the 39 articles. Sometimes we forget, and Paul reminds us here, that it's also true of the gifts that God gives us after we're saved. It has nothing to do with our own merit and everything to, new, to do with the needs of God's church. So what are these gifts and needs? According to Paul, God ordains some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. It's interesting because Paul used the same word for these church offices, gifts, that he uses in other letters for healing, prophecy, speaking in tongues, and even faith, hope, and love. These are all, according to Paul, gifts from God. And the purpose of these spiritual gifts is, I love the way he puts this, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And the end state is that we gain maturity and we're conformed more and more to the likeness of our head, who is Christ. So they're not for the exaltation of those to whom they are given. And they don't make us super-Christians. In any way shape or form. God give them, gives them to us so that we may build his kingdom and bless others. As Christians spiritual gifts are given to us not based on our worthiness but the needs of God's people. Of course that's not really what we want to hear. It is so easy to place ourselves at the center of the story even in the face of God's miraculous power. OK, God, that's great that you can walk on water and part the Jordan, but you know, what's the applica- what, what does it mean for me? What does it mean for my life? Right? It's so easy to do that. And sometimes we can even see the miracle right in front of us and massively miss the point. If it makes you feel any better, the disciples seem to have the same problem. And there's an encapsulation of this reality in our passage from Mark's Gospel. The disciples strained and struggled against the storm and reacted to Jesus' appearance with fear. Oh no, it's a ghost! In their own strength, they had no power. But Jesus calms their fears with a word and the storm with his mere presence. Now this should lead the apostles to place their trust in him and not in their own striving. This guy that we follow has just done something that is greater than even Elijah could do. However, Mark tells us that their hearts remained hard. And many of them still did not understand and still doubted. Even in the face of Christ's miracle, the disciples are slow learners. And brothers and sisters, sometimes we're also slow learners, aren't we? We try to construct a tame lion out of the God-man who rose from the dead, but as it says in the famous Chronicles of Narnia, he is not a tame lion, but he is good. And thank God for that. The radical and powerful grace of God stands at the heart of every interaction with him we have. God's authority applies not only to the elements, but to us as well. We need to trust the one who is greater than all things, allowing the miraculous power that parts rivers and calms storms to work in our lives and hearts. God knows our needs and the needs of our churches, ministries, families, and communities. And he will give us the gifts that will fulfill those needs. And our job is not to get in God's way. Now let me stop right here before I give you the wrong impression. Because this is not one of those let go and let God messages that you sometimes hear. Uh, Especially sometimes, I don't know, maybe I've watched different TV preachers than you do, but sometimes you hear, you just need to let go and let God. Like we're floating on the clouds, like angels made of marshmallows and unicorn wings. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay. Letting go and letting God is really, really hard. Incredibly difficult. Not getting in God's way is incredibly difficult. Letting go means giving up our dreams, our expectations, our desires. You know, so often we approach serving God like a negotiation, like we're going to sign a contract with our new boss. Okay, so God, here's the thing. I'm thinking I'd be really good at this thing that I've always wanted to do. So if you could give me the gifts I want so I can do that thing, I'm pretty sure it will glorify you. What do you think about that, God? Is that a good idea? Yeah, that's not how it works, guys. (laughs) Instead, we need to constantly remain open to service of God, to the service that God wants from us. I'm really struck by the message that Brother Tim had last week about going to the soup kitchen and him coming back to his abbot and saying, you know, I don't think this is really what I'm supposed to do. And the abbot said, yeah, that's nice. Go back next week. You know, it's the same with God so often. God, I don't really think this is what I'm supposed to do. Well, stop thinking. That's my job. That's really hard. (laughs) It's far from easy. And letting God also means being satisfied with the answer he gives you, especially when it's not the one you want it. Sometimes that's even harder, at least for me. I, can tell you, I can't tell you how many times I've asked, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do right now in this season of my life? How can I serve your kingdom? I'm ready to go. What do you want me to do? And his answer has been, wait. Seriously? Wait. God, are you serious? Because I'm not exactly the most patient guy in the world, if you haven't noticed. Yes, I know, AJ, I'm trying to teach you patience. Well, could you hurry up already? (laughs) Not easy. Not easy at all. This is not an easy 10-step program to healing the sick, casting out demons, and growing your ministry. Okay? Ultimately, we come back to this idea, God's not a divine vending machine. He's not one of these superstitious idols that we can craft to calm the elements or the storms or anything else in our lives. We can't propitiate Him. We can't bargain with Him. That's not the way He works. God is a person. God is personal. And I think sometimes it's, it's hard for us to remember that this is just as true of the Holy Spirit as it is of the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force that if you use the right incantation or uh, do the right things will magically drop whatever gift you, you want or think you need into your life, like one of those claw machines that you can sometimes get small toys out of that you, you know, for, for kids or whatever. The Holy Spirit is a person, and you're a person. And he's going to interact with you personally. And sometimes it's to teach, and sometimes it's to train, and sometimes it's to prepare and equip. And oftentimes it's not what we expect and not what we desire, but it's always good. And it's always the right thing if we put our trust in him. And the good news is that God's grace and God's spiritual gifts and the mighty deeds that God wants us to do are not just for preachers and teachers and apostles and prophets. They're not just for evangelists and apostles. They're also for doctors, and lawyers, and soldiers, and sailors, for carpenters, truck drivers, stay-at-home parents, and probably even professors. We are all, as Paul writes in Ephesians, united as one body with one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one head, who is Christ the Church. We are all called and equipped to obtain that spiritual maturity and growth that Paul describes. And not only to obtain it, but to share it with others, to make disciples as Christ commissions all of us in the Great Commission. We are all ministers of his kingdom, clothed with his power and sent forth to do mighty deeds in his name. The gifts will look different for each and every one of you based on the context of your ministry. For some, it may be the ability to teach. For some, to counsel. Some of you may get the power of miraculous healing. I'm not going to tell you that it will happen or it won't happen because it's not up to me. So they're going to look different for everyone. But our God is a God of grace whose power will abundantly be present for those who step out in faith to serve him. So brothers and sisters, don't worry about the gifts, focus on the giver. Don't worry about the gifts, focus on the one who gives them. More of us, less of God. And trust him to give us what we need as we serve him. And go forth in his name, amen.